Hey guys, you're listening to episode 35 of the Finish Line Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today we're going to be sitting down with Doug Cobb, founder of The Finishing Fund. guys, welcome to the show. My name is Keelan, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Cody. Today, we have Doug Cobb with us. Doug is a seasoned entrepreneur and investor with a deep passion for seeing the Great Commission completed, specifically to engage every last unengaged people group in the world. Doug founded the Finishing Fund in 2017 as a sort of venture capital fund for projects specifically targeting these groups, and they have made incredible progress since that time. Stay tuned to hear Doug's insight into what work remains. Before we get started, do you ever wish you could find more people who are passionate about generosity, serving their communities, and advancing the gospel? Well, check out our Facebook group where you can join the discussion and hear what others have experienced in their journeys. You don't need to have a financial finish line to join. All you need is a passion for glorifying Christ with whatever God has given you to manage. Look for the link in our show notes to learn more. And with that, let's get to our interview. Well, here we are with Doug Cobb. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, Doug. Cody, it's great to be with you guys. So can you just kick us off with telling us a little bit about yourself and your background? Well, I live in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm married 41 years to Gina. We have three adult children, 36, 33, and 31. Two of them are married, and one's getting married in April, so we're really excited about that. We have two grandkids, grandsons that we adore. Everybody says this is the best part of life, and I have no argument with that. My career has been in startups and growth companies. My wife and I started a company together when we were in our 20s, built that company and sold it, used some of that proceeds to start a little boutique venture capital company with a friend, and that resulted in a number of other startups that we were involved with. Actually ended up running one of those for about 10 years. And along the way, got a chance to sit on the boards of some other interesting startups and growth companies, you know, in this area. And so if you have been in that business, you know that not everything you try works, but enough things worked for me that, you know, God was very good to me and and provided a great career for me in that space. Well, Doug, you obviously have a heart for generosity and for the Great Commission, just knowing a little bit about your background. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about where all of that side of the story started and and how God has been moving you towards generosity and and the Great Commission over the course of the last few years. Yeah, there's a couple of thoughts that come to mind. Let me talk about those and please ask more if you you want to probe into any of this more. But I became a believer as a young adult after college, really as a result of meeting Gina. She's the one who led me to the Lord. And so, you know, I don't have the background in some of these things from childhood that other folks do. But right from the beginning, generosity was something that just sort of found its way into our lives together. When I was making $300 a week working at the computer store and she was a student, somehow we still were managing to tithe on that income. And I think looking back on that, I wouldn't have known to say this at the time, but I think looking back on that, it's probably evidence that, you know, one of the spiritual gifts that God blessed me with was that gift of generosity, right? Mm -hmm. It just doesn't make any sense for a brand new believer to be doing that in those circumstances. Otherwise, you know, there was no sort of history or training in that. And so that was our habit all along. When we sold our first company in 1991, almost exactly at that same time, by God's providence, we encountered a book called Money, Possessions, and Eternity by Randy Alcorn. I wouldn't be surprised if that book comes up over and over again on on your podcast, but Mm -hmm. or the the shorter version of it, The Treasure Principle, right? That was long enough ago, there was no shorter version for us. But that book made such an impact on our lives, probably next to the Bible and maybe mere Christianity, because that's part of what got me, you know, into the kingdom. I would say money possession attorney was probably the next most important thing. And 
that's where we sort of decided we were going to jump off from what we had been doing, you know, tithing and deciding we were going to, you know, try to adopt a much more radically generous lifestyle. And so we've now been on that train for, you know, 30 years and it's been great. It's a great journey. It's a little scary sometimes, but that's it. So yeah, that book, you know, both the spiritual gift and then, you know, that book and the understandings that it gave me were really important parts of that journey for me. So tell us a little bit more about how that kind of grew from that initial stage over the years to some of the stuff that you're doing today. Well, you know, Gene and I have always had a belief that God can bring before us the things that he particularly is interested in us being involved with, right? There are an almost infinite number of opportunities to give in God's kingdom. And, you know, I'm absolutely convinced that God calls different people to invest in different things. We don't all have the same calling or interests. Our hearts are in different places. So we sort of adopted the strategy that if we found an opportunity, we were going to take advantage of it. You know, we might start small, depending on the circumstances, the opportunity, but, you know, we we didn't want to turn our back on things that showed up just thinking that those might very well be from God. When I began to get involved with the ministry of finishing the task, and we can talk more about that ministry as we go, that ministry was started by Paul Eshelman, who was kind of my mentor. And really, the broad focus of finishing the task is finishing the Great Commission in our generation. But the first among equals in that larger scope was the unengaged, unreached people groups of the world, UUPGs. I just call them unengaged groups. These are the people groups that remain that nobody has ever been to with the gospel, where there is not a single believer or a single church. There's many unreached groups in the world where there are some Christians and some churches, but not many. But even below that, there's this band of the unengaged. And so I began to get that idea and about the time we were sort of figuring out that, hey, this is a pretty interesting idea, pretty interesting opportunity, we sold a company and had some you know, extra giving resources. And so directly invested personally in some ministries that undertook projects to go to unengaged groups. So we were part of a team that did that in the country of Nepal. We did some of it in Nigeria. We have some connections in Nigeria that you know we wanted to honor and and then also in India, a place I'd actually never been at the time we, we began to do that giving. And that was the most amazing experience, I think, of our giving lives. You know, we were about a year later, I was able to go to India, sit in a big tent with thousands of people and meet some of the first people in their people groups to ever be followers of Jesus in the history of the world. And I just was captivated by that idea to think that 2,000 years after the book of Acts, we are still able to, you know, do what we read about in the book of Acts to be a part of that. I just loved that idea. And so that just caught my heart and my mind and really was the thing that led me to do the finishing fund. The finishing fund was kind of an outgrowth of what I learned in FTT about the unengaged and my own experiences in giving toward that goal of seeing all of them engage with the gospel. And the idea of the finishing fund was kind of the product of, of those two experiences. Doug, I did want to ask a little bit about your experience with finishing the task. I'm specifically wondering what happened when you started supporting these efforts financially? What changed within your hearts and your minds? Yeah, I'm not sure at the beginning there was anything. It was just another interesting opportunity. I was captivated by the idea that Paul you know, promoted and believed, and I absolutely believe now as well, that ours could be the generation to see this work finished. I absolutely believe that it's within our capability by God's grace, because it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. But by his grace, it's within our capability to finish this in our generation. So that always was intriguing to me. Gina says, I like checking things off to-do lists probably more than anything in the world. And the <laughs> idea that we could put a, a big check mark on, you know, something that big and be a part of that, that was pretty, pretty exciting. But like I said, 
what really captured me was when I saw how God could use our giving and then the hard work of the people we were supporting to break through in places where nobody had ever been a follower of Jesus before. And now, you know, through the finishing fund, we're now 500 people groups into that. So there were probably 50 that we did ourselves. And so, you know, we've gotten to have that experience now several hundred times. And we're going to hopefully have it about another 250 times, and then we're going to be done. So I am really, really excited about the possible prospect that, you know, we're that close to seeing that finish line crossed. So tell us a little more about the finishing fund, how that got started, and what you aim to do through that organization. You know, it's interesting. Because I've been involved in startups all my life, one of the lessons that you will learn in that world is that the business you end up doing is almost never the one you thought you were going to do. You do a business plan, you carefully think through everything. But like Mike Tyson says, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth, right? And so when you start (laughs) the business, that's when you really figure out what you're going to be doing. And you know, I think part of the success of entrepreneurs, part of what makes them successful is the ability to pivot toward reality as they begin to figure out what reality is when they're actually in the world. I say that, though, to say that of all the things I've ever been involved in starting, the finishing fund is the most like what I imagined it would be before we started it. And I don't write that down to my cleverness or creativity. I think it's a sign to me that this was something that God had specifically set aside for me. One of my favorite verses in the scripture is Ephesians 2.10. Everybody knows eight and nine, right? For his grace, we are saved by faith, not as a result of works. But 10 says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. And I'm convinced that the finishing fund is one of those that I've managed to discover along the way. I hate to think how many I've probably left by the side of the road, you know, by because of fear or lack of faith or busyness. Who knows, you know, why you miss those things. But thankfully, this is one that I, you know, didn't miss. And what's intriguing about it to me is that the finishing fund looks a lot like what we did when I was in the venture capital business. If you think about what a venture capital firm does, you know, it connects companies that need capital, but don't know investors to investors who want to invest in startups, but don't know any startups except the one that their nephew keeps telling them about at Christmas time, right? And they know that won't work. <laughs> and so the venture capitalist, you know, makes a market between these two groups that really want to be connected, but don't know how to do it. And in a sense, that's exactly what we're doing in the finishing fund. We're connecting ministries who have a heart for this work of engaging the unengaged and the ability to do it. But most of them are not highly scaled. And so raising Fifty or $100,000 is a pretty big undertaking for them. And we help investors who would love to be involved in this work once they understand it. Most of them don't quite get it at first, but once they begin to understand the opportunity, they are excited by it, but don't have any idea which ministry in India should I invest in? Which ministry in China should I invest in? Right? I mean, some of them are already connected. That's great. You know, no problem. But for many of them, it's a, a little bit of the black hole. And so we bring them together and have the consequent result of accelerating the work. So, you know, we help our ministry partners instead of having to spend a year or two or three raising the money to do a project to engage and engage groups. We'll write them a check for what they need or a significant part of it right away and, you know, get going, guys. Don't wait. Hurry up. And so there's a verse I love in Second Peter chapter 3, it's verses 11 and 12. Peter starts that chapter talking about the coming judgment. And, you know, it's where you read about scoffers will come in the last days, you know. And in 11 and 12, he asks, what kind of people ought you to be? In light of all of that, what kind of people ought you to be? And he says, we should live holy and godly lives looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. So I think our mission in the finishing fund is to hasten the coming of the day of God, to speed the completion of this task by making money not an obstacle to launching these projects so that these ministries don't have to worry about that. 
So, you know, one of the amazing things for me about the Finishing Fund experience has been all of the things that I see God recycling in my life that I learned, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. I thought I was learning them for business purposes. I, I didn't understand that there was some kingdom value for some of these things. But, you know, almost every day I see a way that he has recycled something that I learned early on in business now for use in the finishing fund. Yeah, it's always interesting how God is writing that story through our whole lives. And often we have no idea where it's going or just how interesting it's going to get until suddenly we're there. And that sounds like it's certainly been the case for you. I think that Ephesians 2.10 verse is one of the most exciting verses in the Bible. At least, I guess maybe it's because of my personality, but you know, I think that makes life into a gigantic adventure Mm-hmm. of figuring out what those things are. And, you know, some of them, you, you, some things you try turn out not to be on that list. I did one year of, you know, high school, small group leadership. That was not for me. <laughs> so, you know, I politely handed him back the apron and said, you know, there's got to be somebody better at this than I am. But I went to be a teacher of a Sunday school class. We call them adult Bible fellowships at Southeast. But I did that 21 years ago, and it's the last thing I would give up if I, you know, had to start shedding things that I'm working on. That would be the very last one. You know, just God led me into that, and it's been an unbelievable blessing. And so, finding those things, you know, those good works that He's prepared in advance individually for each of us, to me, just makes life an incredibly exciting adventure. As you were telling the story, I was wondering, how long ago did you start the Finishing Fund? Where did that kind of come into the picture? Yeah, we started the kind of the official first day was December the 1st, 2017. That's when the first check went into the account. I was working on the idea kind of all during 2017 mm-hmm. and, you know, running it by people and testing it with folks. And But yeah, kind of the starting date was that our first project was funded in, I think, late February 2018. So that was when the first money went out from the fund to start making stuff happen. And then I wanted to get into a little bit of the logistics of how you guys do the work that you do. And the first one that's obvious is is how do you decide which organizations to work with or which projects to fund? And how does that kind of screening process work? Yeah, we are hugely advantaged in that, you know, we are connected to and kind of benefit from the network of ministries that have grown around finishing the task over the, you know, 15 or 16 years that Paul has been working on that. Some of them are ministries that Gene and I supported personally back in the day. Others are ministries that we knew through that network and, you know, knew that they were capable and committed to this work. I really guessed early on that finding good projects and good ministry partners might be challenging that has really not proved to be difficult at all. And in fact, we find ourselves now, we still are launching projects with new ministries, but very often we're doing the third or fourth or 10th project with an existing ministry partner. And you know that's really great when you find a partner that you're like-minded with that you know will do what you ask them to do. Well, that's just really easy. So you know, the main qualifiers are sometimes we'll get you know over the transom, inbound inquiries from ministries, which that's great. But, you know, the very first question is, all we do is fund projects to engage the unengaged. Are you doing that or do you want to do that? And so for a lot of ministries, the answer to that is is no. And even if they say they want to, there may not be any that are near where they're working. And so that that's the huge kind of first hurdle. It's I'm sorry to disappoint ministries when I tell them that, but that's all we do. And so that makes it kind of easy. And then the second one would be, you know, do you know how to do this work? It's not not every ministry, even good church planting and evangelistic ministries, not everyone is capable of doing kind of the pioneering work into a, an unengaged group. And so almost always the ministries that we work with have done some of this in the past on their own or, you know, with other funders. Uh, they're not kind of taking their first run at it with us. I'm curious how you interact with donors. What is the message that you are putting out there that encourages people to donate to the finishing fund and then eventually to a number of different organizations that you've identified that are hastening this work like you talked about? It's an interesting, kind of from a fundraising approach, it's an interesting set of problems. 
my financial partners are among the greatest people in the world. One of the great blessings of this ministry is I get to be associated with some of the most generous and visionary people that I've ever met. It's just incredible. And how God has connected me to those folks in kind of implausible ways often. There's just so many good stories in that. But, you know, Barna will tell you that something like one in six evangelical Christians even could tell you with much clarity what the Great Commission is. And I'll tell you that, you know, as I talk to folks, I find that a lot of the things that we're doing, we have to take time to explain to folks to help them understand who we are and what we do, right? So most people, many people have heard of the unreached and sort of that's in their mind a little bit, but the unengaged is not as clear. And so you've got to, you know, help explain that. And you have to explain the fact that you don't have to translate the scriptures to start in a place because unlike Americans, most people in the world have two or three languages and you can, you know, benefit from the trade language or the shared language to begin the work. I mean, that's not to say you want to continue that way. You want to ultimately bring scripture into the heart language of the group, but you can begin without doing translation. So no, it's not Bible translation. It's not the unreached. You know, it's these very little, this very small group of typically small people groups around the world. We intentionally picked a provocative name for the ministry, you know, the finishing fund. I did that because I thought that you know, would be interesting to people. I thought it would be interesting to think about giving to something that actually is trying to finish something. You know, most things we give to, very good things to give to, to support, but the need's going to be there next year too, and the next year and the next year until Jesus comes back and sets all things right. You know, there's always going to be orphans. There's always going to be hunger. There's always going to be relief. Those are kind of ongoing, continual needs. And so I think it's intriguing to some folks who hear about us finish. That's kind of interesting. You mean you're really going to try to finish something? And we are. We're, we're trying to aim to finish. I think it's also a little confusing for people when I explain that we don't really do the ministry. We're a venture capital fund. We're a fund that supports ministries that do the work. And that's not something that people are commonly familiar with. There's not a lot of those models. There's there's a few, but it's not that common. And so I think once, you know, they kind of begin to understand, once a prospect begins to understand all of those things, I think a lot of people are really intrigued by this idea that, you know, Jesus gave us this command to go to every ethnos, every nation. And now, at least by the list we work from, the FTT list, we're down to the last few hundred of those groups. And, you know, really we can get that done by God's grace. I think people are very, get very excited about the idea of being part of what I call the sprint to the finish. You know, I don't know if either of you guys were athletes or, you know, runners back in the day, I was not very fast, but (laughs) I know that idea of, you know, the energy that comes when you see the finish line and you know, you're getting close. And that's how I feel. It's hugely energizing to me. And I think to a lot of my, my partners as well. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that and just about the name and about the idea of a finish. We originally named this podcast, the Finish Line Podcast, centered around the idea of a financial finish line. But over the many episodes and conversations we've had, it has really evolved into much more of what you're talking about, of the finish line being this ultimate command that we were left with by Christ before he left of bring the gospel to the world, make disciples of all nations. And and a lot of our conversations have kind of centered around that idea. I was wondering if you could explain a little bit more about how you quantify which people groups are left and where they are and how to find them, that sort of thing. There are two or three primary sources of information about people groups in the world. One of them is called the Joshua Project, joshuaproject.com, I think. And they're great. They're very, very good guys and have a great list. The other big source is the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptists. They publish their data at peoplegroups.org. And so those are kind of the two main ones. There's, there's a couple others, but those are the two primary ones. Long before I became involved with this, Paul Eshelman, who was you know running Finishing the Task, 
decided to base the FTT list on the IMB data. Now, FTT makes some manipulations to the IMB data. Like, for instance, IMB will count some people groups multiple times based on the diaspora populations of those groups. So if you looked at peoplegroups.org, you'd see that the Han Chinese, for instance, are on that list, I don't know, 40 or 50 times because there's populations of Han Chinese scattered all around the world. You might very well make it 200 times, right? Who knows how many Han Chinese communities there are independently around around the world. When Paul got to working on that, he decided that he was going to focus on the kind of the population of origin of a people group and not the diaspora populations. Those diaspora populations are obviously good targets for evangelism and church planning, but they're not central to the UUPG part of the problem. So there's other manipulations that finishing the task does. But finishing the task has been publishing quarterly or monthly for the last 15 or 16 years a list of the world's remaining unengaged people groups. When Paul started, they only picked groups over, I think, a million in population. There were like 600 of those. Then it came down to 100,000, then 50,000. Now the list includes every group with a population of more than 500, although we know about the ones that are smaller than that too and are picking off those as we can. But if you took the current list back in time to 2005 when FTT started, there would have been 3,500 unengaged people groups in the world in 2005 out of about 12,000 people groups on the FTT database. So what is that? Maybe 30, 40%, something like that were unengaged at the time. When we started the finishing fund in 2017, there were 1,450 unengaged groups left. Today, if you looked at the FTT list on their website, there are, I think, 114 UUPGs plus another 35 deaf people groups that are listed. So what's that, 149? There are a few more that we know about. You know, as we've gone, we found a few that need to be on there. So I'm now thinking the number is right around 250 or something like that. It's, you know, it's a little hard to pin it down to the exact digit, but roughly in that range. And I think... By God's grace, my goal is that we can be started in all the rest of those 250 by the end of next year. There's a lot of work to do between here and there, and there's several parts of that that I don't quite yet know how to do. But I really believe that that is possible to see that accomplished, and that that's what we're working really hard for in the finishing fund. So that brings up the question, what makes a people group engaged then? Or, you know, when do they come off that list of still needing to be engaged? How far do they have to be engaged? And what does that kind of look like? Yeah, you can get a lot of fur flying by, you know, posing that question at a conference of missions folks, because (laughs) different people have different opinions about that. And I think it's probably best to think about that as kind of a progression. You know, the process starts when the project is launched You know, workers are selected and trained. A big event is when they actually enter the people group. That's a big deal. You know, you can make the argument that the group is now engaged with the gospel. There's somebody there sharing it. A huge deal is when the first believers profess faith in Christ. I think the most important moment is baptized believers, when the first people get baptized in those groups. Not because of a theological perspective about baptism, although I don't have any argument with anybody on that, more because culturally in most parts of the world where the unengaged exist, that act of being baptized is really a closing a door to their previous religious and often cultural existence. You know, if you're in a Muslim place or a Hindu place, being baptized is is a pretty big step. You know, that's it's not easy to step back from that. And so that's when you really have a confidence that people have gotten it and are committed to the faith. Churches meeting is very important. Leaders developing within the people group itself. So, you know, less dependence on the outsiders, beginning of leader, you know, self-leading groups in the people group. So that continuum describes the process 
we'll typically report either after, you know, we've started to see a meaningful number of believers, you know, 10 or 15 or 20, or when we start to see those first baptisms take place, often that's about the same time those two things happen. But different people have different opinions about that, and I don't pick fights about that stuff, but all of those steps are important steps along the way. So it seems that the work being done has been incredibly successful and it's maybe accelerating. And over the short period of time that you spoke about from 3,500 to 1,450 to maybe 250, it seems like there's incredible progress being made. And I'm curious, what was the biggest obstacle or hang up? Is it the financing of this work, it seems like the model, maybe the strategy has been worked out to some degree and the willingness is certainly there. But what role does money play in all of this? I would say that the most important step in what's happened in the last 15 years was the formation of finishing the task and the beginnings of focusing God's kingdom, the ministry world, the church around the world, the missions world, focusing them on these remaining unengaged people groups. These groups, by definition, are easy to overlook. They're remote. They're small. Some of them are hostile. They always would be the place we'll get there next year, right? And for 2,000 years, they were always the next ones. But Paul you know, built a big searchlight and started shining it on this opportunity, and a lot of ministries began to pay attention to that. So we came along kind of at the you know, somewhere in the second half of the of the game with some rocket fuel to pour on the effort. The ministries were already convinced about the opportunity. They'd already gotten a taste of it. They'd begun to do it. And, you know, God's Holy Spirit was already working in an unbelievable way around the world to, you know, bring these groups into his kingdom. And so we sort of just happened to show up at an opportune time and said, hey, let us make it easy for you on the fundraising side. So, you know, I think we've made an impact, but our impact maybe is the difference between this getting done over the course of the next 10 years and over the course of the next couple of years. You know, we, we've tried to speed it up, but the momentum was already there because of the work Paul did and others in, in, in FTT. So I know that you guys have worked with a bunch of different ministries for many different projects at this point. I'm curious the kind of patterns you see for what is effective in the world today? For example, are you seeing mostly indigenous or local regional missionaries frequently, or are you still seeing a lot of Western missionaries in targeting a lot of these unreached people groups? And you know, are there different strategies that you have seen end up being more effective than others? We try to be very accommodating of various ministry models from our ministry partners. We figure they know better how to do what they're going to do than we know how to do what they're going to do. They have experience with it. They've practiced it. And so we have a fairly wide range of models. We have at least one ministry that is heavily involved in what they would call kingdom business. So they create a small, you know, pretty simple business as an entry strategy and a support strategy. And what we do in those cases is we supply the capital to get that business launched. Many of our ministries use what I call a Luke 10 model, right? Two by two, person of peace, right out of the Bible. You know, just exactly the way Jesus taught his guys to go do it. And lots of things around and in between that. One thing that is almost universally true is that the work is being done by national believers. We have funded two projects that have sent Westerners one to a people group that is so remote that there really is no near culture group to send to them. Might as well send an American if they're willing to go. And one to a deaf group. And we'll probably do some others for deaf groups because those are, there's just some differences there about how that works. But 62 or three projects that we've helped fund, 61 of them have been with near culture believers doing the work. I'm persuaded that is a huge part of what God is doing in the world right now. It's not only more effective because those near culture workers have much lower cultural hurdles that they have to get over to do the work. They already know that it's hot in these places where they're going to go. They already know the food 
they speak a shared language. It's just so many effects. But it's also financially very efficient because we don't pay Western salaries to these people. We pay the you know salaries that they need to live and support themselves in their own country. So, you know, our benchmark from the beginning, and it's pretty much proven to be true, is that we can send two workers for three years to a people group for about $30,000. I don't think you could send an American family to the places where, you know, you couldn't get them there for $30,000. So, you know, (laughs) just the, the financial efficiency of this is so much greater. But let me, let me just say those two things are both true. But I think there's a much deeper and more profound importance to this, and that is that this work is bringing the church around the world together in this sprint to the finish, and it is a beautiful model foreshadowing of what God's kingdom is like and is going to be like. You know, it, I often tell my friends who value diversity highly well, you know, I say nobody values diversity more than God. His kingdom is going to include people from literally every people group on the face of the earth. And so when these national believers come together with Westerners and each side does what they can uniquely do, or maybe not uniquely, but can do to advantage, the result of that is a beautiful picture of, you know, God's kingdom working together around around the world. I love that. I think in some ways it's a an answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17 for the unity of his church, you know, that we're not trying to do it ourselves in the West, but we are partnering with our brothers and sisters in every country around the world to see this this work completed. In past interviews, we've heard the idea that the remaining unreached, unengaged groups are unreached and unengaged because that process is difficult for one reason or another. Do you anticipate any difficulties in the sprint to the finish? Yes, I do. That's why I'm always careful to say, by God's grace, because there are parts of this that I don't yet know. There is one large Asian country where there are a large number of remaining groups on the list, and that country is becoming much more difficult to work in over the course of the last four or five years to the point where it's almost impossible now for outsiders to work in that place. And so it's going to have to be done by the national church. The good news is, is that we're told that there is a very, very large number of evangelical Christians in this country, and it wouldn't take more than a tiny handful of them who got the vision of this to go finish it. And I'm persuaded that that's what God is doing probably in one by one in ways that we don't even know. But in terms of sort of classic strategy that we'd use, hey, we got a Western partner who's got a you know connection in this country and they're going to train some people and send them, that model probably isn't going to work for those groups. There are some tiny groups and some highly isolated groups that are going to be really tricky. There's a people group on an island in the Indian Ocean called the Sentinelese people. They live on North Sentinel Island. It's the place where that young man, John Chow, was martyred in 2018, when he went there to try to take the gospel to those folks, they pretty much kill everybody who comes to their island. So I don't know how we're going to do that. You know, God's going to have to step up in some miraculous way, maybe to help make that happen. But here's what I've seen, guys, is that God is determined to see this work completed. He's already shown us that it's going to be finished. I don't know if you've ever done this. It's a little weird, but I don't know if you've ever watched a ball game that you already knew the final score of. When you do that and your team fumbles in the fourth quarter, you don't worry about (laughs) it nearly as much because you already know the final score. And we know the final score of this game. It's 12,000 to zero. Men and women from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation surrounding the throne of God and praising the Father and the Lamb. And so it's not a question of Will we do this? Will God do this? Inevitably, he will. Our job is just to be faithful, to keep pushing on it, and let him be the one who shows us how to do the parts we can't figure out. I'm curious, as I have a whole bunch of questions in my head right now, but one that comes to mind is when Jesus laid out the Great Commission, how would you define completing that Great Commission? Obviously, engaging all of the unengaged groups is a very important step to that I don't know that we 
can officially know when you know that, that check mark is complete. But what's your take on that? The short and glib answer to that is we keep working until Jesus comes back and tells us that we're done. Yeah. So we don't ever quit, no matter what milestones we think we've crossed. Rick Warren has a great model. He's the new leader of FTT, and he has a great model for the work that I think really does a great job of kind of describing what we need to be focused on. He, he talks about the three B's of the Great Commission. Rick's a Southern Baptist pastor, so three points and they have to alliterate, right? So <laughs> the three B's would be believers in every people group. That's the part we're working on with the finishing fund, you know, getting to the place where we can say with confidence to the best of our knowledge that there is a presence of Christ in every people group on earth. Second B would be the Bible in every language. That's another really important task. I think every church in every people group deserves to have God's word in their own heart language. And there are not only great ministries, but great donors that are focused on that task and working hard to see that accomplished. And then the third B is a body of Christ, because it has to start with a B, but a church, a body of Christ in every place, every village, every suburb, every high rise, every neighborhood. The idea is a church within walking distance of every person on the planet so that there's no place where there's not a witness of Christ. And that third B is really focused on that unreached band where there are some Christians in some churches, but not many. And the idea is let's expand, let's multiply believers and churches in those places by the power of the Spirit so that everyone has a Christian witness. And let's put it this way. If we knew that we'd finished all three of those things, I think we could be very confident that you know we were close to the finish line. What's interesting is, like I've told you already, I think we're within a year or two of seeing the first B finish line crossed. But the translation guys have set 2033 as their deadline. So they're only a couple of years behind the first B effort. And the church planning world, there's various milestones depending on which network you're working with. But, you know, they would say 2025, 2027, 2033. You know, there are very definite plans in place to try to accomplish that goal as well. None of it happens except by the grace of God. But by God's grace, I really believe that all three of those things are within, you know, 10 years or so of being completed. So, you know, I'm focused on the first one, and I think it's the first finish line we'll cross. And we may find out that that's the only one we need to cross. You know, Jesus will tell us that, but we keep working until he comes back on those other two goals. So none of those dates are really all that distant. If there's a plausible scenario where the Great Commission is completed in our lifetime, what does that mean for us and how we should live? Well, I wrote a book about this called And Then the End Will Come. Because in my mind, the clearest biblical signal about the return of Christ is connected to the completion of this task. In Matthew chapter 24, the disciples begin that chapter by admiring the temple. And Jesus kind of in his offhand way says, yeah, you see all this stuff? It's going to all be torn down. And they're shocked. And so verse 3, they ask, well, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And Jesus launches into what we call the Olivet Discourse. We know a lot of those things that he talks about, wars and rumors of wars and false Christs and apostasy and famines and all that stuff. And But in verse 14 of chapter 24, Matthew 24, he says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. So I think there's two reasons to be excited about what we're living through what I get to be a part of by God's grace. One is we may be the generation that finishes this 2000 year marathon of completing the the job that Jesus gave us to do. What a privilege that is. Think about how many of our fathers and mothers in the faith worked so hard knowing there was no chance they were going to see the finish line. And here we are getting to stand on their shoulders and actually finish this race. That's an amazing privilege. But even better than that, if my understanding of Matthew 24, 14 is right, finishing that will open the door to his return. So we may not only be the generation that 
sees this work completed, but we may be the generation that is privileged to see the return of, of Christ. And personally, I am highly motivated by that. I think it is an amazing promise to pursue. I might be wrong about it. I'm careful to say I'm not a prophet. I don't have insider knowledge, but from what I read in God's word and what I see happening in the world, I believe that that is likely to be within, I hope, the, the rest of my lifetime, you know, in the next 10, 12 years or so. Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah. And, you know, I've read that verse before and just sat and thought about what that actually means. It's really hard to wrap your head around the idea of Jesus actually coming back in our generation or even just completing the Great Commission. Every generation has looked to the next generation to be doing that. And we've heard multiple people say on this podcast exactly what you're saying, that we have the capabilities and the technology and the manpower and the funding, if all the pieces are coordinated correctly, to actually complete those three Bs that you mentioned. So I'm very interested to see how everything plays out over the next few years and it certainly gives you a lot to think about. So, you know, you've alluded to this a couple of times, but what do you see in the future for the finishing fund? You know, what do you see coming down the line this year over the next few years? Where are you guys putting your focus and your efforts, obviously towards the remaining people groups, but any thoughts come to mind? We thought that it would probably take, you know, 15 or $20 million to complete this work when we started. And in fact, I'm kind of narrowing that into about $17 million right now. And we have raised 15.2 of that 17 million. So, you know, God has just been amazingly generous to provide the capital that we need to finish this. We may need a little more, a little less. That's still a little bit rough estimate, but, you know, we're narrowing in on that. And if I'm right about the finish line, my hope is, is that we will have you know, started projects and all the remaining groups by the end of next year. So, you know, the question is, what do we do then? And I think the answer to that is probably related to that third B goal that, you know, we just by God's grace, keep raising money if he'll provide that and support the effort to get churches in every place in the world. I think that's obviously the thing to keep doing. It seems totally sensible to me to try to do that. There are great ministry efforts underway to accomplish that now already, and we'd love to be a a part of that. So I'm not making an announcement. I'm not ready to do that yet. But, you know, that's where God seems to be sort of leading me in, in thinking about what we do, you know, following the next couple of years. So, Doug, we have such a privilege on this podcast to speak with people like yourself, all kinds of incredible people and giving us incredible perspective on these types of matters. And I'm really curious for people who are not working in the ministry, for people who are becoming aware of these things and and becoming excited about these things, what opportunities are there for them to participate? And do you think everyone should participate toward completing the Great Commission? Yeah, it's a great question. Earlier, I said that, you know, God's kingdom is a big place with lots of different callings and opportunities in it. And I recognize that people are called to different things. And so when I talk to people about the finishing fund opportunity in the broad sense, kind of the be a participant in the completion of the Great Commission, that doesn't resonate with everybody. And I don't expect that it will. It's not maybe what God has called them to. But I also spend a lot of time thinking about sort of giving and managing giving, both from the point of view of my personal life and as a person who spends his time talking to people about this topic. And I think there's some interesting things to think about there. One of them is that I've noticed that if you compare the amount of time, money, attention that people spend managing their secular portfolios and the amount of time, money, and attention they spend managing their kingdom portfolios, for most people, there's not even a comparison. It's an order of magnitude, two orders of magnitude. They have financial advisors who build them portfolios and carefully manage their stocks and bonds and their other assets. Many people spend their own time working on that for their private investments. We spend a ton of time managing our secular portfolios. For most people, you know, it's a 
generality, so I understand there's exceptions to this, but for most people, their kingdom portfolios, by contrast, are kind of a mishmash of this and that that, you know, they've run into in the past and cat here, a dog there, you know, there's just, there's no strategy particularly to it. Again, I'm speaking in generality, so I don't want to, you know, there certainly are exceptions to that, but I know a couple of people that are doing it. I think it'd be an interesting thing for more people to think about becoming kingdom asset advisors for donors and helping them to build balanced strategic portfolios with their giving. And I think if people thought about their giving more that way, then you begin to think about in the same way that I have stocks and bonds and real estate and maybe some alternatives in my secular portfolio that I would have some humanitarian stuff and some great commission stuff and maybe some secular stuff in my giving portfolio because I want to be a good citizen at the same time I'm, you know, advancing God's kingdom and that would be balanced in a way that kind of makes sure that you're diversified across different asset classes. So to recapitulate that long answer, I understand that people have different interests and I fully expect that it's not, you know, doesn't discourage me at all. I, I'm glad that people are doing what God has led them to do. But I do think that there's room for people to be more balanced and strategic. And my opinion would be that there's hardly anything more exciting to be invested in than the finish of the Great Commission, right? It's just, it's an amazing opportunity. You know, going out of business, there's only a few more years left to do this. And and then that opportunity will be gone forever. So, but of course, it's what I do. So, of course, I think it's the best. Yeah, thanks for sharing that insight. And last time we talked, you mentioned something that I, I wrote down and I thought was so interesting. You talked about the parable of, of bigger barns. And I was hoping you could share your, your thoughts about that and what's different about modern times that allows us to sometimes neglect our kingdom portfolios, if you will. So, you know, Jesus tells this parable about the rich fool who realized that his farm had been so prosperous that he didn't have room to store all of the stuff that he had accumulated. And so he says to himself, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger barns so that I'll have plenty of stuff and then I'll eat, drink and be merry. I'll have everything I need. And God says, this man, you fool, your life will be required of you this day. And he says, this is how it'll be for those who are not rich toward God, right? So the warning is, don't pile up your stuff, be given a lot to the kingdom, I think. And that's an interesting parable and kind of a sobering one and a not very happy one for wealthy people, but, you know, a good warning. But, you know, as I've been thinking about this, I've been thinking that that guy actually has an advantage over rich people in the West today, at least he had to build barns to store the stuff that he was accumulating. We don't have to do anything. Your you know, brokerage account is happy when you put the first $1,000 into it and add a zero, it's 10. Add another one, it's 100. Add a couple more, it's 10 million. The computers don't care how many zeros are there. We are effectively building bigger barns as we allow that to happen, but we never have to even stop and think about tearing one down and building another one. It just happens, you know, in the course of of time. And so I think the trap is even more deadly for us than it was for that man, that we could just let stuff continue to pile up. And, you know, I mentioned to you guys, I just love what you're doing with this idea of the finish line podcast. I think it is so easy for wealthy Americans, wealthy Westerners, to just get caught up in the worldview that more is better and to kind of lose touch with the reality that long time ago, I passed any possible amount of money that I would be able to use or spend or deploy in my lifetime. And it's just, it's just piling up in bigger barns. And, you know, back to what we're talking about, about maybe being the generation to see the fulfillment of Matthew 24, 14, you know, at least for all of human history, if you piled up a big estate, at least your you know heirs got to enjoy it, right? Somebody got to use it and enjoy it. You know, the Bible has some things to say about that. Often they're not going to be great stewards of it, but at least they got to enjoy it. But once Jesus comes back, everything that we have is going to be useless. Now we're going to get new stuff, 
I'm persuaded in the kingdom. The Bible speaks about treasure in heaven, and I'm hoping that's true. I believe that it is, and I'm really hoping that there'll be some of that for us when we get there. But whatever we have in this world is utterly useless. And when you become convinced, as I have become convinced, that we are living in the era of the finishing of the Great Commission and the return of Jesus, I believe that, it just needs to change my view and our view about money, possessions, and eternity, right? Time is short. Anything we've got left is going to be useless, and it just should tip the balance toward more giving, more giving. We wrestle with that like crazy. It's not easy to do that. You know, one of the hardest things that we've experienced is actually spending down your net worth, you know, giving not from income, but from net worth. We've been doing that a little bit, and it feels so counterintuitive. It's scary to do that, but I really think that's the right strategy given the times in which we live. So I don't think many people are thinking about that, and I'm glad you guys are helping people think about the idea of finish line and you know the importance of setting that. Yeah, I mean, Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy. I mean, that's exactly what you're talking about. And I forget who it was, but I remember somebody gave the metaphor of the Confederate currency at the end of the Civil War, knowing that it's going to be... Yeah, Randy Alcorn. There we go. Money, possessions, and eternity. You know, that it's going to be worthless in a very short amount of time. What are you going to do with it? And that's really how we need to view any wealth that God allows to come through our hands. And I think that's exactly what you're saying. It's so, so hard to do that. I could write you a book about this, right? I could tell you (laughs) all of these things, but it's one thing to understand those things academically. It's much different thing to actually step out and do it. And it is hard. You know, we found how hard it is to do that, but I think it's the right strategy. And So, you know, by God's grace, I hope we'll be doing it more. You know, one thing I have discovered over time is that the best way to conquer the power of money in your life is to give it away. Giving money away scorns money in a way that destroys its power. You're so unimportant to me that I can just give you away. And we have discovered that over and over again, that, you know, the act of giving is a very, very therapeutic thing for our greedy, selfish hearts. Well, Doug, this has been really exciting, and I think we've all gained a lot of perspective from hearing your thoughts and kind of what you're seeing from your perspective. If people want to learn more about the Finishing Fund and get more involved, how can they find out more about your organization? Yeah, probably the place to start would be to visit our website, which is finishingfund, one word, finishingfund.org. And you know, from there, they have an opportunity to send me an email, and then I'll reach out and you know, we can talk about what we're doing and answer questions and so forth. But that's a great place to begin. We got a couple of good videos on there that explain more about what we're doing. And I think people can get a pretty good understanding from that. Great. And as a reminder, we spend all this time talking about the fact that we're managers of God's wealth, that everything always has and always will belong to him, but we're just managing all of his stuff on his behalf. And at the end of every episode, we like to give our listeners one practical action that they can take right now as a manager of God's wealth. And when we have guests on the show, we like to give them a chance to share an idea of their own. So, Doug, do you have a quick suggestion for our listeners on how they can use any financial margin they have to serve communities, advance the gospel, and build God's kingdom? Well, I think you guys would be disappointed in me if I didn't say, you know, find a way to be invested in the completion of the Great Commission. The Finishing Fund is one way to do that toward one of those goals, and we would be interested in talking to people. But whether it's through your church or through a particular missions organization, if you're interested in Bible translation through the organization Illumination, there are many ways, but this is an opportunity you don't want to miss. We really are racing toward the finish line, and it's a great chance to be involved in the completion of something colossal that God's people have been doing for a long time. Awesome. Couldn't have said it better myself. Well, Doug, thanks so much for joining us today. This has been a very interesting conversation, and I still have a ton of questions rolling around in my head. But thank you for sharing all you guys are doing and just for all your insight into the Great Commission and the role we are all invited into and and have been invited into by Christ before he left. Well, Keelan and Cody, thank you for having me on. 
we'll do it again if you want in a while, right? We'll do an update maybe in the next year and see how close we are to that to that finish line. But I love what you guys are doing. Stay with it. Keep it up. This is really needful. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we would love to hear from you. And now I have a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who is living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? If so, we would love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line, and they don't need to have all the answers. They just need a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we would be honored if you would connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com, and we'll get back to you soon. Finally, if you want to find any of our references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 35. That's all we have for today. We'll see you next time. 